Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Last night I watched the beginning of a sermon and this whole premise was the word peace is overused during Advent. Well, I don't care. I'm going to use it anyway because I like it. And I like what I studied and learned over the past few weeks preparing this sermon. And hopefully you'll learn something as well. Because today we're going to examine a passage from the book of Micah that Dee read for us, our Old Testament lesson. And we're going to find out how it relates to the Christmas season. See, Micah was a prophet that did his work of prophesying during the reigns of four distinct kings in Israel, the northern kingdom, and at the same time, three different kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. He probably wondered as he watched all the parade of leaders pass by during his lifetime whether any one of those administrations would last. We sometimes ask ourselves that same question, would any one of these administrations last? But of course we know it was to this humble prophet that God sent a prophecy, a very specific prophecy about the birthplace of a ruler to come and a ruler whose kingdom administration would never fade away. Now, since we're viewing a prophecy, there's a few things that we need to consider first. First thing is, when God is up to something, he's always going to speak through his prophets, if he wants to let his people know what's going on. Amos chapter 3, verse 7, Amos, another one of God's prophets, says, Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Now keep in mind that prophecy is not always a positive thing. A lot of times prophecy can be a hard pill to swallow. Because depending on what's needed by God at the time for his people, God will often be correcting, rebuking, even pronouncing judgment on his people through the words of a prophet. And we see those over and over again. However, another wonderful aspect of prophecy is encouragement. God encouraging his people. And we see this over and over throughout our scripture as well. God uses prophecy to encourage his people about what's coming in the future. It can be especially encouraging if it's about something good and wonderful coming in our future. But even better than that, even more encouraging than that, is seeing God's prophecies fulfilled. Because when we see God's prophecies come to life, it's a reminder of who our God is. Our God is a promise keeper. He keeps his promises. Those words that he sent to the prophets, they live out their life in reality over and over again. And because we know God is a promise keeper, our faith can be renewed. Our faith can increase. And then the message that we share out there about our God as a promise keeper can be even stronger. So as we review this prophecy of the Messiah this morning, specifically the birthplace of the Messiah in Micah chapter 5, may you be both encouraged and strengthened in your faith. I want to read the text once more before I break it apart. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. 
And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And here's the punchline. And they, the people, shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. There's that word again, peace. But I'm still going to use it. In verse 2 of the prophecy, already we've come across some interesting phrases. Maybe you've thought about this before. What does Bethlehem Ephratah mean? Why was this descriptive word used and attached to the birthplace of a coming ruler? Well, one of the reasons commentators say is that this city is identified in this way to distinguish it from another Bethlehem. Yeah, there were two Bethlehems in the land of Israel. The other Bethlehem was, again, another small village about midway between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee, given to the tribe of Zebulun, and listed in Joshua chapter 19 as one of the cities the tribe of Zebulun would be in charge of. Now, the prophesied Bethlehem that we know of, the name actually means house of bread. How interesting. And the word Ephratah means fruitfulness. And if you understand the geography of the land and understand that around it, it's filled with abundant plains such as figs, almonds, grapes, and even olives are grown there. What a fitting place for the birth of one who would call himself the bread of life in John chapter 6. This word Ephratah, or sometimes shortened to just Ephrath, was also the ancient name given to the village of Bethlehem. We're going to speak of in just a moment from Genesis chapter 35. What I found most interesting when studying for this section of text was that out of the nearly 125 distinct towns listed in the inheritance of the tribe of Judah, where Bethlehem is located, out of those 125 names, Bethlehem is not even among the top 125 as far as size, so it's not listed at all. It's not large enough to make the list. So when Micah says, Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, it literally means it was too small to hold a clan, or what we think of today as about a thousand people. So Bethlehem had always been small. It had always been this out-of-the-way kind of fly-speck place. It certainly wasn't the magnificent city of commerce, politics, and religion that Jerusalem came to be known about. And certainly when thinking of a place for a future ruler to be born, it would be the last place that anyone would certainly think of. Well, anyone except God. As so often happens with God, good things come in small packages. You think about the insignificance of water in baptism. There's nothing special with water until the words that God used in that water are shared over the water. Bread and wine. There's nothing special about bread and wine, but what wonderful gifts God has granted to us through the use of his son's very body and blood, through those insignificant things of bread and wine and water. Think about it. You probably have a Christmas tree up at home. If you don't have it up, it might be getting to be time to put it up. But you think if you've got any presents there right now, do you have any tiny little ones? Sometimes the best presents are in those little ones, those tiny packages. And certainly God had in store for Bethlehem to be one of those big things come in small packages. 
And we also have to remember throughout the biblical text that many good and significant things have already happened here in the town of Bethlehem. For example, Jacob's wife Rachel gave birth to their youngest Benjamin on their way to Bethlehem. Here's what it says in Genesis 35, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Bethlehem, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. I had kind of forgotten that, that Rachel died in childbirth, giving birth to Jacob's youngest son. Now, an interesting name study can come and take place here when we understand Genesis 35 and you fast forward to Jesus coming to Bethlehem a long time later. Understand that the word Ben simply means son of. It's like the word tell in Israel and Hebrew simply means hill or mound. Ben means son of. So there's a lot of Ben names. Ben-Oni, which Rachel named him, because think about what she was going through at the time. Ben-Oni means son of sorrow. Well, Jesus was called a man of sorrow. Go to the next slide. And finally, Benjamin, Jacob named him Benjamin. He said, Ben-Oni isn't an appropriate name. I'm going to name him Benjamin. It means son of the right hand. And we know that Jesus was exalted to the Father's right hand. Acts chapter 5, verse 31 is just one of the many places where we understand this imagery. Do another account for how significant Bethlehem was in the Old Testament. The account of Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. She had a happy ending at the gates of Bethlehem. There she won the heart of a man named Boaz, thereby becoming one of Jesus' ancestors. And it happened at Bethlehem. Ruth chapter 4 says this, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and she bore a son. They called the son Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Things start coming together when you understand the context of where we are and what we're looking at from the prophet Micah. And let's not forget that King David himself was born near Bethlehem. 1 Samuel tells us, Now David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. There's that word, a little bit different form now, called Ephratite. Ephratite here is kind of a, a family name around Bethlehem. It'd be like saying that somebody is related to the Kennedys. You know, the Boston Kennedys. <laughs> we move on a little bit further in our verse, and, it's, and Micah says, From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who's, who is to be ruler in Israel. So here we have a foreshadowing, another ruler in the line of David, the very savior of all mankind, and he would come from Bethlehem. This, of course, was the exact scripture that was quoted to Herod when he asked where Jesus would be born. In Matthew chapter 2, Herod, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. What prophet? The prophet Micah. And then they shared with Herod what Micah had written all those years ago. However, we know that while the Savior Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, he would not originate from Bethlehem. Micah gives us that little fact here. He says, the, this ruler whose coming forth is from of old, 
from ancient days. This phrase, when used elsewhere in Scripture, is this Hebrew writer's way of saying God is eternal and everlasting because the Savior already existed long before he was born. Jesus existed in eternity, not something that we can piece together in our mind. How can he be born in time and space in Bethlehem and placed in a manger while at the same time living forever as the second person of God? But we know that God keeps his promises. We know that God uses his prophets to tell people what he's up to. We know that the Savior would not only be a human being born in the town of Bethlehem, but he would also be God. This verse here in Micah, along with other verses in the Old Testament, one of the many which foretold that the Savior would be both God and man. The specific Hebrew language used here is evidence that Micah expected something to happen and it would be a supernatural arrival for the Messiah. And it was this emphasis on the miraculous and the spiritual that kind of fed into the Jews for all those centuries, expecting some mystical arrival for their Savior. Pastor Neil shared with us last week, Jesus was not at all what they were expecting. People saw Jesus born. They saw him grow up into a man, and he looked just like a regular guy. So when they started thinking, could he really be the Messiah? Does this match up with what the prophet Micah shared with us? Yeah, it was a tough pill to swallow for people. But Isaiah, who who preached at the same time as Micah, he also spoke of a coming Savior who would be both God and man. In fact, our wonderful Christmas verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Well, he wouldn't have been called Mighty God unless he was Mighty God. A few chapters earlier, Isaiah 7, 7, 14 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, Emmanuel means God with us. He wouldn't have said God with us if it weren't going to be God with us. So there's absolutely no doubt that the coming ruler would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be both God and man, divine and human, and he is everlasting. He is God. What an amazing thing we understand is going to take place in this small, insignificant town of Bethlehem. Not so insignificant anymore. I also want to point out that God didn't tell Micah exactly what to expect, when to expect. No, we want to know those things, but God keeps some things to himself. Micah didn't know the exact time that this would happen. But God gave Micah a few things, a few events that would surround the Savior's birth. The context of the third verse of our passage is Micah telling God's people that, guess what? You're under God's judgment. You're going to be separated from the covenant with God through your own doing. God, he's kept his part of the bargain. You sinful people have not. And so Micah says, you're going to enter a time of temporary abandonment. Therefore, he, God, shall give them, the people, up until it's going to be temporary. This time of temporary abandonment will continue until she who is in labor will give birth. 
Of course, a foreshadowing to Mary's labor seven centuries later when she gives birth to the new ruler, Jesus. And also kind of included here are the labor pains that the people of Israel will have to go through during these seven centuries in this separation from God. Israel's separation from God is marked not only by the bringing forth of this new ruler, but also the return to Israel from what Micah says by the rest of his brothers. The brothers that Micah spoke of here are all of those who share a heritage with the ruler. We have to remember that Micah's words come well before either of the nations, either northern Israel or southern Judah, has been attacked, besieged, destroyed, and exiled by the Assyrians and Babylonians. So the return spoken of here is not only a final return of all those exiled from the 6th to 8th century B.C., but it's also those who would be returning from a figurative exile by their unbelief and their rejection of God's true Messiah. So Micah is telling us when Jesus comes, when this new ruler comes, there's going to be a time of return of God's people to the right path. And we know that all throughout Jesus' ministry, and especially after his death and resurrection, 50 years later, what happened? The church started growing by leaps and bounds. Exactly what Micah had foretold would happen. I'm going to wrap up now with verses 4 and 5 from our text. And you've got to understand that Old Testament believers probably saw the glory of God spoken of here better than you and I can at all. And it comes down to one simple reason they understood a lot more about shepherding than you and I do. So when Micah says, and he, God, shall stand and shepherd his flock, God and the ruler shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And here's the punchline for us. They, the people, shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he this new Savior, Messiah, ruler, shall be their peace. You see, an Old Testament believer, understand, could picture themselves being taken care of by someone who loved him, who knew his every need and supplied it like a shepherd to the sheep, would be strong enough to protect him from any danger, even laying down his life for the sheep. How glorious will it be when the Savior comes to shepherd us for his second and final time? Yeah, what we just read in Micah chapter 5 is just remarkable when you start breaking it down and see how God, as a promise keeper, worked through his prophets. Micah, like all the other prophets, moved by the Holy Spirit to record a predictive event which stated that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. And listen to how God makes that happen. Micah writes these prophecies. And then several hundred years go by until one day God breaks into human history by sending his son to be carried in the womb of a woman, a girl named Mary. God then also does some more miraculous stuff. He changes the heart of a pagan Roman emperor who lived 1,500 miles away from Israel to declare that a census had to be taken of the whole world, and not just any census. You had to go back to the town of your birth in order to be counted. 
And because Mary was so far along in her pregnancy, Joseph decided that it was best if she went with him before he was going to the town of Bethlehem where his ancestor David was from. So the Messiah would be born just as Micah had predicted it. And now we know today that the peaceful effect of the kingly reign of this Messiah described in Micah is so beautifully crafted. Israel is going to be lovingly cared for. There's going to be a messianic king that's going to carry out his royal duties, and it's not going to be just any royal duties. It's going to be royal duties with the strength of God, not human rulers. We understand that the glorious reach of this ruler's reign is going to extend beyond national borders because the authority of this king will be universal, not just a country, not just the world, but universe-wide. And it's this universal power and peace that will come through a ruler born in an insignificant town of Bethlehem. Friends, the greatest gift that anyone can receive this Christmas gift is not that tiny present under the tree. No, it's the gift of eternal life. Paul shares us with us in Romans chapter 6, the bad news, but also the good news. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We Christians understand that living in our sin apart from God like some wayward sheep will lead us nowhere but spiritual death, eternity in hell. But the greatest news of all time is that we can be forgiven of those sins that we commit, sins known and unknown to us. How do we do that? We have faith that Jesus came and did exactly what he said he would do, and that gift was for me. And then we make that 180-degree turn away from what I want to do to what he wants me to do for his kingdom. Friends, the greatest gift that you can give to anyone this Christmas is the story of redemption that God accomplishes for each and every person that hears and believes that they are a part of the story. I'm going to say that again. The greatest gift that you can give anyone this Christmas is the wonderful story of redemption that God accomplishes in each person that hears and believes that they are a part of God's story. The greatest gift that you can model for anyone this Christmas is living your life at peace, at peace with yourself, at peace with your family, friends, neighbors, community, and at peace with whatever comes your way. So my challenge for you as we're wrapping up 2021 is that you humbly share with others that peace that you do have and the reason that you have it. And may the truth of Micah's ruler to come Bring you true happiness, joy, and yes, peace. In Jesus' name, amen.